the five o'clock service over the summer, um, we've been looking at family matters. And we started by looking at the concept of what does the Bible teach is family. And we looked at the Old and the New Testament, and we sort of spoke about the fact that family is at the, is at the heart of God's heart. Genesis is all about family. The Bible is all about family. God works through families. I mean, Genesis is just a book of families, genealogies and families that do right and families do, that do wrong and parents that can't have children and children that, you know, get on with one another and children that don't and Joseph and all these types of things are all family issues. And God's great promise to our father of faith, Abraham, was that in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Jesus was born into a family. There's even a family in heaven, if I can use that word. He's the son and there's the eternal father. So family is extremely important. And it's interesting that the enemy is attacking the family almost more than anything else in the world. Um, marriage as well, marriage. Your, 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 um, your society is only as strong as its marriages because your family are as only as strong as its marriages. And when there's marriage breakdown, or when people don't even pay attention to marriage, there is breakdown at every level of family. And uh, last week, we spent some time looking at what marriage is, the definition of marriage. You can get all these things on the internet, go to our media section and go to the series, and you can see all these there for you. So if you've missed any, don't worry about it. Many join us on the internet, and lots of people tell me that during the week they listen to um, these, uh, these sermons, even though they're not here on Sundays. But last week, we spoke about the fact that, that the big um, controversy raging in the Western world about marriage is, is really at its root a misunderstanding of what marriage is. So we looked at what traditional marriage is, biblical marriage is, and we saw that, that marriage is a union between male and female, and that it's consummated through these uh, two complementary parts, male and female, husband and wife, complementary in every respect, complementary uh, on the inside, complementary on the outside, physically and sexually. You know, uh, even today, a marriage is not considered a proper marriage until it's consummated. And that sex in the marriage is actually all about children. And so the natural coming together of man and wife in marriage and the consummation of that naturally will bring children. And marriage is the basis of of family. Marriage is not just about two people that are in love with one another. It's the foundation for family. And then we looked at the other definition, the modern definition of marriage, which is simply, it's just two people that have an emotional bond to one, one another. It's got nothing to do with sexual compatibility, nothing necessarily to do with, with family and offspring, and therefore it doesn't matter whether it's male marrying male or female marrying female. If it's just about an emotional attachment, then why shouldn't that take place? And so we, we went into that in detail to say, this is the confusion that's out there that many Christians themselves don't understand what biblical marriage is. And so when they hear about gay marriage or something like that, because they think that marriage is simply an emotional attachment between two or three or four, I mean, who's to say that you can't be married to two people? And we looked at that last week. If it's purely emotional attachment, then uh, they, they can't see it. So we, we define that. But today I want to move forward. I want to speak a little bit more about the roles of husband and wives in marriage. Next week, we will look at fathers and mothers, the role of fathers and mothers, according to Scripture, in the family. 
Um, then after that, the last two weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, divorce, but also after that, we'll be looking at the final one will be God's heart for broken families. So God's heart for single parents, God's heart for divorcees, God's heart for brokenness and bringing healing. And then just to, as soon as I'm speaking, in September, we're going to have a new series. And that series is going to be called Questions of Canon. The canon is what we call our Bible and the different books that are in the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. But how did those books get in there? Who chose them? And why did the Roman Catholic Church, for example, have a whole bunch of books in the middle of their Bible in between the Old and New called the Apocrypha that they say is the Word of God that we as Protestants say isn't? And what about all these other books that aren't in? And who chose them? And how did the Holy Spirit, how can we know that the Bible is trustworthy? So by the end of September, I hope to have brought to you a series where you can understand how the Holy Spirit, not the man, not bishops, not church, but the Holy Spirit brought these books and letters together and how they were recognized and how we got our Bible so that you can have a stronger faith and understanding of the Word of God that is God-breathed and how it came together. So that's what's happening in September. But let's go now to look at a, at a brief overview of the uh, roles of husband and wife in marriage. I'd like to start with Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, where Jesus is being questioned about divorce and marriage. I said last week that the husband and wife are complementary in all respects. But although they're complementary and equal, it does not mean that they have the same Role. There are specific roles for this complementary bringing together of husband and wife, male and female. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6. Well, actually, sorry, let me go back. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. The Pharisees also came to Jesus, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, remarriage, and things like that, Jesus says, look, it, it wasn't like this at the beginning. In other words, divorce is not God's plan. And even though the law of Moses had provision for divorce, it wasn't God's best plan. It was God dealing with a fallen situation. And so Jesus is basically saying, if you really want to understand what marriage is, you don't go back to Moses because the law of Moses was dealing with a broken situation. But if you really want to understand what marriage is, go back to the beginning. And there Jesus quote, quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. And let's just go back to Genesis. I think in the second of this series, I spent some time, a lot of time actually, in Genesis, a whole, a whole um, afternoon with you, um, in Genesis, where we were looking at marriage in Genesis. And that's important because that is the model that Jesus is using. So you want to understand marriage? Go back to Genesis. 
And marriage is, is rooted in God's created order. Um, if you notice that Jesus said that what God has put together, let no man break apart. Marriage is, is not a human institution, do you know that? It wasn't made up by human beings. Human beings are tampering with it. Human beings are changing its definition. Marriage came from God and was defined by God. And in fact, we, we see right at the beginning, the first story is a story of marriage. We see that God created man in his own image. And almost immediately that man is created, the pinnacle of God's creation, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And then we have this suitable helper taken from the rib of Adam, not from his head to be over him, not from his feet to be under him, but from his rib to be aside him. And in the, uh, in the, old, in the Genesis, we find there is a mandate and I won't go over it all. I've done it in a, in, a, in a whole afternoon with you. You can go back to it. There is a whole mandate that God gives to husband and wife. He says to them both, go and subdue the earth and be fruitful. So the husband and the wife are brought together for a purpose. And that purpose is to rule the world on God's behalf, but also to be fruitful, to produce children. And that was God's plan for them. Be fruitful and multiply. Together, the mandate was. They were to be partners. And marriage is a partnership. It's a partnership. But in that partnership, we find that there are different roles. In um, Genesis chapter 1, let me just find it, and... Sorry, not Genesis. Let me just... Ah, oh, sorry. Genesis chapter 2. And it says, verse 20, So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and to every beast of feed. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were naked, and uh, uh, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, this helper, this, this context of this suitable helper, the Hebrew word ezar for helper, suitable helper, this is the beginning of what we understand about headship and submission in marriage. And this is the idea, I, I used this analogy a few weeks ago, I'll use it today, that Adam is the head of the family, that the husband is the head of the family, and that the wife is the suitable helper. It's a partnership, but in marriage, and we'll look at some New Testament scriptures in a moment to show this, in marriage, there, in the partnership, there is a senior partner and an associate partner. I use the analogy of the fact that here at 
Kensington Temple with many different ministers and many different leaders at many different levels. But I use the illustration of Colin's role as senior minister and my role as associate minister. So Colin, as senior minister of the church, he is, under God, the leader, the senior leader of the church. And from him, we would expect, as senior leader, for the initiatives to come. The buck stops with him. I know there's a church board and everything, but you know what I'm talking about. The buck stops with him. He's the senior leader. And I'm the associate minister. What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm inferior to Colin? No, not at all. I don't feel inferior. It just means that I have a different role. One of my main roles here at Kensington Temple is the ministry of helping the senior minister. That's one of my main roles. My main role is to be here to help and to aid, to be the, uh, the, a support for the senior. Now, there's plenty of other people that are there to support Colin. He has a wife. He, he's got a church board. He's got leaders. But I'm just using my role as, a, as, as, as an example, the associate minister. And so I'm not the senior minister. I'm the associate minister in a supportive role. But in no way do I feel inferior. It's just a different role. You hear what I'm saying? And so when we come to marriage, that's a good way of describing it, that the senior partner in the marriage is meant to be the husband, and the associate partner is meant to be the wife. And that's a good analogy. In fact, what happened at the fall was a mess up in the marriage relationship. Because I went through this again, but it's worth mentioning again. When you look at the fall, everything was going wrong in the marriage. And it was because the marriage relationship was going wrong that the enemy got in. Why do you say that? Well, the serpent, who did he come to speak to? Did he come to speak to the head? Did he come to speak to the senior partner? No, he went straight to the woman, didn't he? And why did Eve speak to the serpent without reference to her husband? And what was Adam doing when all this was going on? Surely he should have been there. It's like, it's like I mentioned, I said, you know, if, if some strange, weird person starts acting strange with your wife, then you as a husband, you go straight in there and say, hey, wait a second, what, what's, what's going on here? You, you're there to protect, you're there, you're there to look after. And so then we find that Eve makes decisions and Adam follows. She's taking the lead. And Adam is just following and doing whatever she says and, and, and not paying attention. And so this mix-up in different roles was part of the reason that the enemy was able to get in. And then when the judgment came due, due to the fall, we find the judgment also affected the marriage, brought difficulties into the marriage. And uh, it talks about Jesus, I mean, God speaks about the fact that Straight away, one of the judgments that came in a fallen world was, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So straight away, their mandate to multiply was affected by the fall. But then it says in verse 16 of chapter 3, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that word desire is not talking about you'll desire your husband in a loving way. That word desire, if you look at the Hebrew, is talking about you will want to rule your husband, manipulate your husband. You will try to, uh, to, to take his place. And how will he react? He'll react by pushing you down. And so immediately we, we have this thing that happened in the fall 
where we have the associate minister, if I can put it like that, in the family, grabbing and saying, I want to be the senior minister. I want to be the senior minister. And then you've got the senior minister in this relationship bashing down and ruling. The word rule is strong rule and, and dominating. And so there you've got a terrible situation. You've got the associate, the helper, the suitable helper wanting to be in charge, and then you've got the person who's ultimately responsible abusing that responsibility in return. Well, let's go to some New Testament verses. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to expand some of this, because I, I spent a lot of time in Genesis, and if you want more on that than I did a whole session on that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's start, start with verse 3. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul speaking. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. For that is the one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is glory is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man." Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, well, let me keep reading. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of a woman, nor a woman independent of a man in the Lord. For as woman came from the man, even so man also comes from the woman, but all things are from God. Now, what, the, what is this talking about? Well, you've got a situation here in Corinth where Paul is, uh, in one session, he's addressing how women are presenting themselves. And at that time, in the city of Corinth, there, there was a, it was, I mean, it was the Babylon of the ancient world. Uh, it, it was, you know, the red light district of the ancient world. And all kinds of sex traffic was taking place there. Um, it was a place where a lot of trade passed through and everything that happened there. It used to have a temple on the Mount of Corinth that had thousands of temple prostitutes. Part of the Corinthian religion was bound up with deviant sexual practices. And one of the ways that prostitutes presented themselves was by shaving their heads. And so here, Paul is dealing with a particular situation where somebody was dressed, where women were dressing inappropriately. Okay, you say, well, what about today, women with short hair? Well, the question is, is it inappropriate? If, you, if someone comes to you as a lady and, and thinks that you're a prostitute because of what you're wearing, then you might want to change what you're wearing. Do you hear what I'm saying? This was the situation that was there. But what is clear here is what Paul is speaking about when it comes to headship. Because he says the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He's talking about order that's here in, in, in the Godhead and also in the family. Just as the Father is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of humanity, so there is order where the husband is the head over the wife. 
It says that woman came, comes from man, man not from woman, and man was created, was, nor was man created for woman, but woman for man. What is this? It's not about saying that women are second rate or second best. It's talking about the role. It's talking about the suitable helper. Basically, Paul is saying, look, the husband wasn't created as the suitable helper for the woman. The husband wasn't created the associate uh, and the wife the senior, but it was the other way around. Now, when we talk about headship, and we'll look at this a little bit more, what we're talking about is responsibility. Okay? In, in spiritual terms, whenever anybody is given authority, the, the next most pertinent and appropriate word to spiritual authority is responsibility. So when we speak about Colin being the senior minister, say myself being the associate minister, we both carry responsibility, but Colin carries a higher level of responsibility than myself. I try to support him in that responsibility, in that role, but he's the senior I'm the associate. It's like when you have senior partners and junior partners, isn't it? What's the difference between a senior partner in a firm and a junior partner, apart from the salary grade? It is responsibility, isn't it? And leadership and decision-making. So one of the most important things about understanding headship in the marriage uh, as, uh, as being the husband is that the husband carries the ultimate responsibility for his family, and indeed even for his wife. And that's, that's a big responsibility. And what we find is that Adam wasn't doing that during the time of the fall. That was his failing. He wasn't taking responsibility for what was going around us. We find often that in the fallen world today, one of the problems is, is that men don't take their responsibility seriously, number one, in the marriage, number two, with the family, do they? You know, you see these women, and they're the ones that bring up the children. They're the ones that make sure they're clothed. They're the ones that make sure they go to school. They're the ones that do the discipline. They're the ones that help them with their homework. They're the ones. Where's the husband? He's sitting watching football with a cup of tea. Doesn't want to get involved. Men, fallen men, have a tendency to shun responsibility. That's why we have so many single young parents in Britain today. Where are the fathers? Where are they? Where's they? Where are they taken? They're off. They don't want to take responsibility. They're off. They're gone. And they, they, left, they, they leave the woman to deal responsibility with what, whatever's, whatever's taken place. And remember, this is a theme also because when you look at Romans chapter 5, I haven't got time to go there. Um, when we talk about the fall, who takes the ultimate responsibility for the fall in the Garden of Eden. Who, who, who takes responsibility ultimately? The major. Adam does. Adam does. Eve had her part to play. And immediately after the fall, Adam blamed Eve. So Adam did not take responsibility for his family or his marriage. He said, it wasn't my fault. The woman, in fact, he blamed God. The woman you gave me. Almost like, if you hadn't given it to me, I'd have been all right. And, hey, this woman messed up. So Adam was not taking responsibility. On the contrary, he was shifting responsibility and blame to his wife. And what did his wife do? Read the story. She said, the serpent. So Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, let's go on a minute, yeah. 
plenty more where those came from, but I'll keep them to myself. And so in Romans chapter 5, when Paul speaks about when the whole human race fell, when the world was fallen and humanity fell in the Garden of Eden, because how many of you know you're not born perfect? You're born with a propensity to sin. Sin is a spiritual hereditary disease. And the only person after Adam that was ever born free from sin was Jesus Christ himself. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks about the fact that when we all sinned, or we were all affected, we all sinned in Adam. Well, he could, why didn't he say Eve? Why didn't he say Eve? Eve was the first one to do it. Why, why didn't Eve get the ultimate blame? Because Adam was responsible. Why didn't he even say Adam and Eve? Because ultimately, Adam should have put a stop to that. That, that was his role. So, headship in marriage is talking about great responsibility for the husband. So when you speak about headship today and you speak about the fact that the, the husband is the head of the house, any sort of like uh, macho type of, that's right, woman, I'm the head of the house, where's my tea? Excuse me, I'm just going to ring my wife, Nicola. Nicola, I want my tea. I want my tea and I hope the house is sorted and I hope you've done everything so I don't have to do anything because I'm the boss and you're not. That type of attitude is totally inappropriate for responsibility uh, because it means that if you're a husband, everything eventually comes back onto your desk. Everything. Everything that happens in your family, you have to take responsibility for. Of course your wife is responsible. Of course she is and shares responsibility. It's a partnership, isn't it? Of course she's responsible and responsible before God for her part. But ultimately, you are responsible for what's going on in your house. Just like the father was the head of Christ, so the husband is the head of the wife and the, the head of the family. And we see this in, um, for example, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, speaking about leadership in the church and eldership. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, let, let's read from verse 1. Qualifications of a spiritual leader in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of an overseer, in the church, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You see, in those times, people were coming to Christ and they had two or three wives, some of them. Why one wife? Because, uh, as Jesus said, the model is Genesis. That's the model. Not the patriarchs having two, three, or four wives. God never, ever confirmed polygamy as being his will. He tolerated it but it wasn't his will. One wife. Uh, Sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, nor, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but covet or covetous. One who, verse 4, rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, again, no knee-jerk, ego reactions, macho reactions about ruling your household. No, you're responsible for what goes on in your household. Oh, I've got a wife and she just won't obey. 
Or does that let you off the hook? Oh, I've got some terrible kids in the right mess. Does that let you off the hook? No. And especially if the husband, it's your ultimate responsibility, along with your wife, but ultimately, it's your responsibility to fix that situation the best way that you can with God. Get help, whatever you need. You are ultimately responsible for what goes on in your family. So can you see how, how that builds that? We'll be looking at fathers and mothers and roles and children um, um, next time. Speaking about this family order, because remember, you can't separate biblical marriage from family life. As I said, our modern mind, we think of marriage, two people in emotional love who want to express that in some sort of covenant or contract. It's all about, I love you, you love me, let's get married. Oh, and if we fall out of love and it's just not working, we'll dissolve it. But it's bigger than that. Marriage should always, sometimes things happen and people uh, find it difficult to have children. It was the same with the patriarchs. But normally, and uh, the idea of a marriage is that one day, that is going to be a stable family. How wonderful that the outflow of two compatible husband and wives coming together, consummated with sex, will one day produce children that will carry both the genes of those parents in a stable environment to be brought up. So it's very difficult. And the Bible doesn't think about marriage apart from family. Marriage is the beginning of a new family. Well, it's still part of an extended family, as we saw earlier. But anyway, I, di I digress. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. So there we've got that submission there. Now, again, don't, when we talk about submission, let, let's understand it in context. It's a partnership. This is, doesn't mean that the wife, you know, can't, can't speak until she's spoken to. Remember, in Genesis, husband and wife were brought together to do life together. They are the dream team. They share possessions together, resources together. They, they, they fulfill God's mandate with one another's giftings and callings on their lives. They do it together. If the husband's got a different calling than the wife, that doesn't matter. The husband's role is to bring the gifting and calling of the wife out, as we'll see. It's life together. It's a partnership for life. So in this submission, we are talking about a, about a supportive role. A wife's main role is to support her husband. A wife's main role is to support her husband. Whatever else is going to happen to support her husband. I found that in the ministry, that ministers, and let's speak about male ministers right now. We could speak about female, but I'm speaking about male in Israel. That male ministers that have supportive wives flourish. Flourish, need in their weaknesses. They get by. Why? Because they've got a good woman behind them. But I've seen and we've seen over the years in different churches and situations that when a wife is out of order and, is, and fails to be her husband's greatest supporter, we'll come to her own gifts later, but her greatest supporter, things can be very difficult for that. The amount of people we've seen out of the ministry or their ministries aborted because they don't have a good wife behind them, a supportive wife. And so here, wives submit to your husbands, it's fitting to the law, but listen, husbands love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So immediately we see that husbands say, hey, wait a second, don't abuse your authority. Don't abuse, love your wife. We're going to see 
that the pattern of a husband loving his wife is Christ loving the church. Let me just read because it does speak about, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We'll look at some of this later. Let's go now to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And here there's a whole section on submission. Um, so if we, um, if we go back to, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13, won't read it, but it's therefore submit yourselves, oh, so he reads it, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man in the Lord's sake, to governors and those that are present. So, the, so we hear submission to government. Then verse 18, submission to masters or bosses at work. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And there's a whole section on that. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, we have submission to husbands. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some of them do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of, of your lives. And then verse 7, a word to husbands. Husbands, likewise, Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So here, um, there's submission, but there's also the husband who is there especially to honor his wife. Let's take a break from the New Testament. We'll come back in a moment to Ephesians 5. And let's go to Proverbs chapter 31. Because this is a wonderful passage and often used as the model of a virtuous wife. And I want to read this to you. And uh, anybody that thinks that the Bible, when it speaks about the husband being the head of the marriage, uh, that somehow the wife is going to be, you know, chained to a cooker, cleaning and cooking and doing whatever the man wants, like some sort of servant, has no idea, therefore, what the Bible and New Testament is actually teaching. But let's have a picture of this virtuous wife. Verse 10 of Proverbs 31. And I think it's lovely that this is the end of the book of wisdom. That right at the end of Proverbs, what does it end with? The model wife. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil. All the days of her life, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plans a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hand to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. 
Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. I mean, what a wonderful passage. I mean, when you, when, when you look at this and unpackage the principles um, behind it, you see a woman of incredible dignity, don't you? A woman of dignity, a woman of responsibility, and a woman of authority. A woman that is not just honored by her husband, but her husband is proud of her. I mean, he's, he's saying, do you know what? I'm so proud of my wife. What could I, I, I couldn't do it without her. While he's at the city gates, you know, the, the place of leadership, what is it? She is supporting him. He, he is flourishing. His honor comes partly from her honorable activities. You know, it's true that if you have a wife who's honorable, as a husband, it reflects on you. But if you are, if you are a husband and your wife is dishonorable, you know, and many of these principles aren't applying, she's, you know, unruly, inappropriate, um, bad character. That doesn't just reflect on her, that reflects on her husband as well. You say, well, isn't it the same the other way around? Yes, but more so for the husband, more so for the husband. Because when a husband is like that, you go, poor, poor wife. Oh, have you, I, I, I've thought that. I've, have you ever, I've found someone where I've thought the husband was a bit of a Charlie, do you know what I mean? And I'm thinking, do you know what I really feel for? The wife. But, you know, a husband, when a wife is, is not moving and growing in these areas, you might say, well, I feel for the husband. Yeah, at the same time, I think, well, what sort of man is he anyway? What sort of man is he, first of all, to marry such a nutcase? And secondly, just to, just to allow this woman to, to rule all up. What's going on here? What choices have been made? How did all this happen? What foolishness? And after all, he is ultimately responsible for the actions of his wife. I'm sorry, you married her. You're a, if, if you don't want to be responsible for her, don't marry her. If you don't like what you see, if you don't like certain traits in that woman, then you better not marry her. Or you better make sure they're fixed because as soon as you marry her, you're responsible for her attitude, her actions, and what she, she's responsible. Yes, she is, but you also are responsible for what takes place in your marriage and what takes place in your household. But this woman, this woman is dignified. This woman doesn't have to prove herself apart from her husband. No, she is, she is happy to be her husband's greatest supporter, yet look at all the things she is achieving as an individual. She's not sitting there going like a wallflower, I'm not no, just my husband, I'm not here to do anything. She's not, she is in business, she is known in public, people know her, she is active, she is flourishing, not just in her household, but in her community. I mean, she is, she is as full as dignity as her husband. And she, and, and she is her husband's greatest honor. And you see that honor. Even her kids call her blessed. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful model. What a wonderful, wonderful picture for, for us to look at. Well, I spoke a little bit about the women, but let's go a little bit about the men too. And let's go, finish with one of the most important passion, passages in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. You know, marriage is so important because not only did God create marriage, 
But God uses and chooses marriage as the primary analogy of his relationship with his people. And we see this here in Ephesians. I mean, right through the Bible, we see God's relationship with Israel and then with the church as pictured as a marriage. And when his people, Israel or the church, the bride, are faithful to God the husband, there's a wonderful partnership on the earth, wonderful honoring. But when Israel or the church go astray and after idols, and God can speak about it, you know, as, as a divorce, and he uses marriage terms. We know that Jesus is what? The bridegroom, isn't he? And the church is the bride. And when history ends, when Jesus returns, we're going to have a big party. And guess what that party is? It's a marriage supper of the Lamb. So marriage is so important, so valued by God. Verse 22, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are all members of the body of his flesh and all of his bones. And here, Paul is quoting like Jesus. Genesis is going back to Genesis. Genesis before the falls the model. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let her wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in training admission. Lord, you see, marriage flows straight into family again, family life. And so this is an incredible passage, isn't it? And I think that this, this is the greatest passage of understanding the different roles that, that we have here. Headship is not an option. I don't want to push this forward, but there's a whole bunch of weird theology going on in modern day saying that headship doesn't, doesn't mean leadership or doesn't mean authority, that it means source. But I've just read a few scriptures, and in each of those scriptures, the context is authority with responsibility. Shared responsibility, remember, we're not just saying that the husband's in charge and the wife can't make a decision. Senior associate, helper, decisions should be made together. But in the end, whatever those decisions are, even if they're jointly made, the husband has to take responsibility for them. The key word for husband, responsibility. The key word for wife, support. And sometimes, of course, I don't have time to get into this. I hope Jonathan touched on some of this on the 2.30 because he was speaking more about practical outworking of this. Sometimes you recognize that your wife has better gifts than you, better abilities than you. 
And you don't sit there and say, well, I'm the, I'm the head, so I can... No, you fr- the, the whole point of a husband is to release his wife into all her giftings and into all her potentials. The husband's primary role is to release his wife into the fullness of her destiny and her ability. I mean, look, here's the picture. Wives submit to the husbands. We looked at that. But husbands, you love your wife like Christ loved the church. This isn't someone sitting there going, you obey me, you do this, you do the other, where's my tea? Um, This is somebody saying, how can I help you flourish? The picture there is Christ sanctifying, cleansing, washing, presenting a glorious church. No spot, no wrinkle, nothing. So husbands ought to love their wives. In other words, you are there to help your wife grow in her beauty and honor in all things that she is. You're there to support her. You're there to do it. And if that means as a husband, you have to sacrifice for your wife's benefit, then you should do it. You, 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 should, you should do it. You make those decisions, and, and you do it. Now, wives, do, you don't go around and start, no, you don't do this. You don't, well, I'll love him, I'll submit to him when he starts loving me like Jesus. Well, you know, game over right from the beginning. No, it's not like that. Everybody has to grow in these roles. It's not like that. And so a, a proper husband, you see, this is mutual love and respect that's at the heart of this. The moment that people start digging their heels in, you will obey me, wife, digging your heels in, uh-oh, or I'm not submitting to you because you're an idiot, uh-oh. Hear what I'm saying? There's no communication there. There's no mutual respect there. There's no honoring there. There's no, no husband. And when you are responsible, husband, you have to hear. If you are ultimately responsible, you've got to hear what your wife's saying. You've got to listen. You've got to think. You're a partnership, for goodness sake. You are a partnership. In some marriages, it's like ding, ding, round two. They're not partners. They're in opposition. You're not giving me what I need as a husband. Well, you're not giving me what I need as a wife. Well, you're not respectful to me. Well, you're not honoring to me. Well, I need this. Well, I need that. And sometimes what happens in marriages, you've got people and they're just sort of like (laughs) trying to get from the other without giving. And it's like, you're not giving me what I need. Well, you're not giving me what I need. Wait a second. Do you know what? When you're a single person, you look after your own needs. Do you hear what I'm saying? You look after your needs. But the Bible says that when you get married, it all changes. What's meant to happen is you're meant to now, your primary focus is meant to be looking after the needs of your wife or your husband. And their primary focus is to be looking after the needs of their wife or their husband. You see, in a great marriage, and it doesn't happen all at once, but this is where we're working. Into a great marriage, I should be thinking about my wife's needs and she should be thinking about my needs. It won't always work like that because we're selfish beings, but that's the target. So I'm thinking, How's my wife? what does my wife need? What, where's her stress that needs helping? Where does she need strengthening? Where does she need releasing? Where does she? And the wife is thinking, how can I support my husband? How can I be his greatest fan? How can I see his dreams come through? He's low, he's discouraged. How can I encourage him to be everything that God's called him to be? I, I, I'm his suitable helper. I'm his greatest support. I want to see him flourish. I, I am behind him 100%. And the husband's thinking, look at these gifts that my wife's got. How can I 
develop them. Look at this part of my wife. Look at what God's done in my wife. Look, how can I beautify her? How can, in, in all respects, how can I bring more honor? How can I allow her to expand? And, and your focus is on your wife, and your wife's focus is on you. And when you get that, sometimes you see in marriage, you have to press the refresh button and get back to the way it should be. So sometimes life goes on, it's busy during the week, and everything like that, and every so often you say, wait a second, I'm getting a bit selfish, or this isn't working. I've got to press the refresh button. Oh, that's right, I'm here to look after my wife, and she's here to support me. Let's just get back to, we, we, we're getting a bit selfish, a bit self-centered. We need to get back to this mutual support. Oh, and we're a partnership. Instead of fighting one another, we should be fighting together. We should be pulling together. Can't allow my wife just to pull the whole family while I'm not doing it. Can't allow my husband to go forward without being there for him. His support, his greatest fan. That's what husbands want, you know. They want someone to believe in them. And, and, and to have a wife believe in you, especially when she knows what you're really like, because a wife sees your faults more than anybody else as a husband. But a husband, more than anything, to have a wife that believes in you. That even when you've got mistakes and you fail, she's your greatest supporter. She's behind you and you know it. You'll listen to her more. Even if she says some painful things, you know, hey, she's behind me. You know, the worst thing for a husband is when a wife constantly pulls the rug under their feet. Nothing is more distressing than sitting, hearing a, a married couple and hearing the wife bringing down a husband. You know, it's awful because I know that that marriage is just not going to go away because the wife is like embarrassed about her, her husband or ashamed about her husband or putting her husband down. And you say, well, a husband can do that against what? Yeah, and that's awful too. But to hear that, I'm thinking, how awful. Your wife's not your greatest supporter. She's your greatest denigrator. I don't think you will achieve anything that God's intended you to do on the calling of your life. Because if God has put you together in a marriage, we can speak about singleness another time, and we have done, but if, if God has put you together, then that wife is meant to turbo boost you. I can tell you, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my wife, Nicola. I wouldn't be here today. wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't be here today. Impossible. Everything I am and everything that I've done that's of any valuable, uh, uh, that's been of value, my wife's been my greatest supporter. Carried things for me so that I could continue to do certain ministries at times. Sometimes people say, oh, we don't see Nicola very much. That's because she's at home looking after a disabled daughter, freeing me up to be all that I can be. She's my greatest supporter. But then I don't, I'm not meant to take that for granted. I've got to think, hey, I also need to make sure that you know, she's not left carrying everything. And there's times in our life where I, we made sacrifices. I remember once, deep in her heart, she had this great desire. She was a school teacher, Ori, head of Ori. She had this great desire to be an educational psychologist. And Jake was a couple of years old. And I knew she had this great desire. And she'd done a degree in a spare time in Open University. She got a theology degree, a PGCE. We, we did theology degree together. That's where I met her. Um, should have been doing theology. I was looking at my future wife. She's got a PGCE, and then in a spare time running head of department for RE, she did an Open University Psychology, then an Open University Master's Psychology in a spare time. 
And then we had Jake, and he was a couple of years old, and I knew that she had this great desire to be an educational psychologist, and it would be a year full-time, and Jake was three. And I knew she desired it, she said, oh, I'd really love to do this. And I thought to myself, this is going to cost us, because Jake's young, and that means that we'll have to find the right carer, and I'm going to have to, for this year, I'm going to have to really work extra, because she's going to be going early, coming home late, loads of work, and I'm going to really, really have to, have to think about this year paying a, a, a big sacrifice for this. And she said, look, in the end, you know, I'll do what you want, what you think's best, and I don't want to. I said, do you know what? I want us to do this. I believe that this is the right thing. This is something you want to do, and we can do it. It's a year. We can do it. I'll make sure that we can do it. I will fully support you in this because I see there's something of you. Paid, paid a price for her to do that. Well, God's providence, who'd have known that we would have had a disabled daughter and that without her uh, training in educational psychology, we would not be in the situation that we've been with local government and everything with her. You see, so it's mutual. It's mutual. You can't lose when you give to the, give to the other person. And, and also, whenever there's been any difficulties in relationship in marriage, it's usually, if I'm being a bit sort of grumpy, sort of I'm the boss, or more often, it's not the man being the boss, it's the man stepping away and saying, don't bother me with the kids' problems right now, I've just had a hard day at work, or can't you sort it out, or what do you mean bills, or what do you mean there's things in the wider family that are happening? Don't bother me with that. Don't. I learned very quickly that what, what, used to, what would happen is I would come home from work, I'll be tired, and the first thing I want to do when I get home is just chill out and tune out. I want to put on the TV, I want to do something, I just want to get some time. Well, when I get home, first thing Nicola wants to do is talk about things, things she's been thinking all day, things that are important, family issues, family. And what would tend to happen is that I wouldn't be listening. She said, you're not listening to me, and I wasn't listening to her. And so we, we realized uh, how to deal with it. So sometimes I would try to come home and say, right, let me listen, let me be brief, let me input, let me, these things are important. Or if I just wasn't up for it, I would say, uh, we know now, I'd say, Nicola, can I just have an hour? Just an hour to get myself together, or over the meal, or later on. And, we, and she goes, yeah, of course. But beforehand, when we didn't have that understanding, there was a bit of friction, because I was coming home, she wanted to include me in what was going on in the family Jake's day, and I was like, well, I, I, just, oh, I just got through the door, I haven't even put my briefcase down, and, and it's not like she wasn't working, she was working too at the time, and it was like, but, but we understood, and I understood that I've learned that when anything goes wrong, or things aren't working, or we're having a bad week, or something like that, guess whose responsibility it is to fix it? Mine or Nicola's? Ultimately, it's mine. Ultimately. Ultimately. So if things aren't working, and, I, and even if it is her fault, I've got to say, how am I going to work this out? I'm going to work this out. And you know what? When you do that, you become a man. You become a man, and you begin to grow as a man. You begin to say, hey, I'm going to take responsibility for what takes place in my marriage. I'm going to take responsibility to make sure this is... And you know what? Your wife loves it because she sees that she's marrying someone who is growing in his responsibility and as being a husband and a head and enjoys it and says, I can get behind someone like that. Well, these are just some initial thoughts about the roles. And I haven't gone greatly in depth 
and we could have talked a lot more, that's the 2.30's job, about practical things. I just gave you a few examples on the end. But I just wanted to show you simply some basic outlines of the roles and make sure that hopefully you wouldn't go to an extremes and think that women are meant to be slaves and that men are meant to be bosses or go to the other extreme and think that uh, there's no such thing as senior and associate in marriage because there is. God bless you.